everyone, welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. Today we dive back into China Mieville, though with a lot more time and effort, as we enter New Crobazon and the stories in Perdido Street Station. And I should note, it is October again. And as such, it is my honor and my pleasure, of course, to welcome two co-ghosts, or should I say hosts, of the Horror Vanguard, John and Ash. <laughs> welcome! Hey, hello, hello. Ooh. It's it's always a great time to have you both on. It's <laughs> I mean it's it's a tradition at this point, and I love it. I love it that it's been going for so long that it's now officially a tradition. Uh yeah, it's 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 become part of part of history itself. You can't have October without a left page horror vanguard collaboration exactly it it's natural at this point it's it's obvious and i, I love it and i i love this choice of book and i i was surprised at how long it was but it was great uh yes it's very long it's extremely long it is my edition is <laughs> my edition is just under 900 pages Woo. My my digital version at a reasonable sized font is seven hundred and ninety pages, and I was like, "Oh boy!" Absolutely. I I read most of this on a train ride on my phone, and like the the phone digital copy was like one thousand five hundred pages. So yay! <laughs> I mean, you read it quickly though, Ash. I I'm impressed about that. I really enjoy. I really enjoyed this book. I'm I'm so excited to pronounce quite possibly every single name wrong. This is going to be such a fun conversation for me. Oh, that's true. It's it's just like oh, you read them and it's like okay. So I just I had to figure out how to how to pronounce Krobuzon. I was like oh, I'll go with that. I kept I kept saying new Krobuzon, and I was like oh, that sounds so wrong. <laughs> oh, and it's it's always great to have you both on, and you know it's it's John's choice and John's uh, mission to have been getting to to read getting ash to read this book for a while now and it's happening on my show yay finally finally <laughs> it took it took john like five years to get me to read this frank it took you all of one text so. <laughs> <laughs> ah, delightful power it is <laughs> it's a phenomenal read though i really should have read this five years ago <laughs> it's okay we we forgive you I, well john needs to forgive you i know i do that's true, that's true. Hey, better late than never. For me. Better late than never. So, how do we want to start? However, however, however you want to start. I'm good, I'm good with anything. I came here to podcast, I'm already winning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the inevitable go to pod. I just have, there's this giant moth outside my window. It looks like it wants to get inside. Yeah, you should, um, you should, like, if you're cold, they're cold. Let the slake moths inside, not only your your home, but your consciousness. You, you know, it, I keep trying to get a good look at its wings, but I just see it in the reflection of mirrors and other surfaces. I'll, I'll keep you posted if I can get a good look yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, please do. Well, should we should we start with uh, New Crobazon itself? I think so. I think it's it's sort of like the, I don't know, main character kind of thing, or that that which lies uh, perpetually for the entire novel. And it's both at the side and at the center during the whole thing. Um, okay, I have, a, I have a slightly hot take to share. Ooh. Hit it. 
Um, this is from this is from Carl Friedman's excellent book Art and Idea in the Novels of China Mieville. So oh, I just want to read a set, read it read just a, a little bit for you. Perdido Street Station is important first of all as the inaugural volume of uh, Mayville's Bas Lag trilogy, and hence the novel that establishes the world of Bas Lag as perhaps the most convincingly detailed and fully realized alternative world yet created in modern fiction. The most obvious precedent is Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, by far the most widely influential modern work of literary fantasy, and of the sub-creation, Tolkien's own term, of a vast, elaborate, detailed and self-consistent alternative universe. Yet Tolkien's achievement is nugatory compared to Mieville's. The Tolkien Middle-earth, for all of its wide extent and minute detail, is a thin and impoverished world in comparison to Baslag. Middle-earth is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Ooh. There's a, there's a there's a slightly controversial take, but what do you what, shots fired? What do you both think about the world of Baslag, the city of New Krabazon, uh, and how the world itself is constructed? I really like it. I think it really the initial like hit of variety and difference and change that is going on. It's it's quite impressive. It it hits you right at the start as you are entering it alongside an outsider and you're an outsider and it slowly fills you in bit by bit the various spaces some of the shall we say a city iconography and its um landmarks and it just it really sticks with you it's very it's very consistent i think in, in just how distinct and, and filled of change and full of changing things that it has and yet at the same time it feels so it, it, it's uh, this sounds bad but in a, especially someone working with literature but it sounds real in in every single aspect <laughs> just the way of the relationships the the power struggles from various sides the class struggle and and then the natural disaster of the slake moths if, if we can put it like that but I just, it, it's so impressive with how much there is and how much is going on. And yet, I i don't think at any point I felt lost. Well, I think no more than usual. Like, it's its disorienting, it's chaotic, it's strange, it's weird, it's discomfortable. And yet, it's still somewhat familiar, at least from a, someone who inhabits uh, or lives very close to one of the largest cities in the world. So that is mm -hmm. like... It's a, an urban environment times 10, and yet it still hits all those same lines or those same chords. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's a fantastic way to look at this. And I just, to contrast this with Lord of the Rings, I think it's really important too, because I think Tolkien's writing, Tolkien was very much making set pieces and characters, and it's it's uh, not, not, not to like downgrade what Tolkien did, because I love Lord of the Rings, but it's almost it's almost like you're making you're making a dollhouse with with figures like I could see Gandalf showing up in Mortal Kombat, you know, like I could see Ga Ga Gandalf emerging in other media, whole and intact, and as Gandalf appearing in some Transformers or whatever. I can't see the same thing happening to Isaac or Lynn or T for Two or Motley or like any of these other people. I can't see them like outside of this world. It's just so deeply lived in um, for both good and like. It's good, and it's also kind of frustrating because I had to keep like being like, okay, is this character like, is this a lizard person? Is this an alien? Now, where is this? I'm so happy that there's a map. 
at the very start of the book. Like that was one of my favorite parts about this. And I think it just speaks to like the intentionality here and how lived in of a city this winds up creating. So a lot of people say that the book is kind of too long um, and maybe too big. And a very common ah. cr criticism I hear is like the, the first third doesn't kind of feel like it's going anywhere. But really, when you get to about the halfway point, you realize that the first third has planted the seeds of like so many interlocking moments of crisis and and has kind of presented you with an entire social and political and economic totality like a lot of a lot of a lot of like science fiction or fantasy tries to put you in the perspective of your protagonist right tries to tries in fact to kind of narrow how much information you have and how much access to information you have. And what I really love about the Bass Life trilogy is that it just goes, no, I, you're not going to be put into the perspective of, of a singular character. Story is mediated through Isaac, but you are given, you are given insight into the world as a totality rather than just this kind of like thing that you find out about along with the, the, the point of view character that you ride along with. So you have these kind of like thick anthropological descriptions, like you you get introduced to the to the to the military problems, to the geography, to where the deserts are, to like this world. Uh, it feels too well. It feels too detailed for it not to be kind of real in some way. I uh, you you've activated my trap card because I also came with a hot take prepared uh, for the work of Pedro Street Station. If if you would both entertain me presently. Uh, uh, but you mentioned fantasy and science fiction as as a kind of generic classification for this work. I don't I don't think this is sci-fi. Oh think no, this no, is no, realist fiction. Yeah, Th this is realism. I, I, this is realism, but everyone's wearing silly alien costumes, and we've changed the name of Manchester to New Krabuzan, and like everything has been shifted and tilted just to make us have to squint to look back at our own reality. But this is like cinema verite. I'd be really curious for, for Frank, your thoughts on that too, as someone who's, who's more into literature than I am. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I stand by that. I, I, I love how that, because I think it does cut exactly what uh, this book and, uh, and Basilog is trying to do. I, I mean, I've only read this one, but as you know, a series, I, I get the sense or the gist of what, what, what types of things will go on next. <laughs> oh no! No, you don't. No, you do. You don't. No, you don't. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. Um, you. It's really difficult to know what to expect. But in, in the sense of like the the engagement with the world and the level of detail, it's. I I I hadn't thought of this before, but the comparison with Tolkien feels very apt, in the sense that it's like it is about building an entire world, and that entire world fits in a single city. Um. Yeah, and and that's quite uh, you know uh, mirror of the real kind of thing. Very like oh yeah, so uh, th this is what a city is, and what if we turn it up to eleven or twelve or two hundred, and and you know we get silly costumes and weird traits, and then we uh, we dig deep into other weird continents and stuff, and and get some weird biology going, and. In regards to like that point about the like the first third of the book, like I think it does set up everything in a way that just sort of carries the narrative as like 
oh, this event which is happening and, and the, the moths and, oh, everything's going weird mm-hmm. uh, and everything's going bad. It's not... You see the dominoes falling very early on, and I think that is so well set up. There's, there's a part pretty early on in the book that's in that... Um, because the first third is kind of slow, but I think it's it's slow in an important yeah. way because there's, there's a wonderful point um, where... Isaac, Lynn, and a few of our other kind of like, you know, our, our casting crew of main characters have gone to like a carnival uh, to go to go scope out a Garuda that's performing a, a like circus act. Right. And Isaac is like, OK, like there's a Kefri, there's there's some there's some frog aliens, there's some other things. I have no idea what that is. I don't know who those are. Is that even sentient? Oh, it, it's not a sentient. That's just some kind of animal. Like, even he's confused at all of the different alien species that live in the city that he lives in. And I think, like, that was that was such a wonderful moment for me because I was also really confused. And I'm like, like oh, that's the point. That's the point. We're in this cacophony of noise. Even if you've lived in the city your whole life, you're still not going to know its totality. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, and this, you bring up two really important things, actually. So, like, there are two things that I really like about what the opening third of the novel fact what the entire novel suggests which is that all of the various intelligent races uh and different kinds of being that live in the city are um there are all kinds of relationships which are possible you know you so you have you have the 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 vardyanai the the, uh, the basically the the magic working class frogs uh, <laughs> you have you have the kepri you have uh sentient cacti slash plant people um like like, there are cross-species friendships there are um there's like religious and kind of like quasi-ethnic bigotry and racism there's political cooperation there's political struggle across across these different species being lines and there's like eroticism as well yeah it's it gets at the notion and like it very quickly does that in, in the way that it's slow. And I think it's that setup that's like, oh, you expect these people that, oh, or this species, which are the Kepri. And, you know, they're like this and they're always like this. Like, nope, throw all those ideas out of the window. They're very divided. They're very different. They're outsiders. They're different groups with different ideas. And th- these are, we're just talking about like two different neighborhoods. And... It gets to this idea of like a monoculture or monocultural species or or community, and it's like, yeah, no, this uh, this doesn't exist, and it really pushes down on it in a very good way. That's like, oh, so uh, like, in if we don't get the whole picture, it's because there isn't a whole picture. It is fragmented. It is divided, and we get the pictures that these characters have and the way they look at the world. So how does Lynn face? And see her own community, her past community, her leaving her original home and community, and, and her change, and then her rediscovery, and then her meeting Isaac, and that relationship. So all those different processes and moments, what they mean for her, and as keeping that in a process of change, and how that is changing still within her and alongside her interactions in the world. So it's... Uh, we're shown a very. I think it needs to be slow this first uh, third of the book mm-hmm. because otherwise it's like the rest doesn't make mu- as much sense or doesn't feel as connected as it does without this. Like it's the necessary setup, which is kind of slow, yeah. But it's like so. Welcome to New Crobazon, 
So here's some of the sites. Here's some of the interesting things going on. Here are some of the people. Here is the board set up. And then when the pieces start moving, uh, well, the whole table falls apart. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, because because the novel because deli- the novel deliberately tries to like in a way this is why I I, I realize that I have a real fondness for novels that basically try and be about everything uh, <laughs> or it's like <laughs> like if you want to do a universal story show me show me a universe uh you know if mm-hmm. you if you want if you want to have that kind of narrative ambition I think you kind of have to be willing to go no I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you all of it. And and it's all going to be in there, and it's all going to be important. And and I think I think the slowness is also really important for counteracting what I think is a huge problem in this kind of like generic writing, right? Fantasy, sci-fi, because we we have kind of the the Klingon problem, right? When you're attempting to depict an alien race, you you wind up just kind of mirroring and recreating a lot of like weird, uncomfortable, problematic, sometimes racist stuff from our own world. And I think by by being so slow and letting us really soak in Lynn's perspective for a lot of the beginning of this book, not only does it set us up for the tragedy at the end, which we fall for hook, line, and sinker, but like I think it also like allows us to escape the kind of gravity well of like, oh, these are the, the these are the belligerent race aliens. They only ever do mean, violent stuff, and these are the good guys who pray all the time. The overly simplistic way of approaching creating these universes. I, I mean, it, isn't that what comes up right in the first scene with Isaac mm-hmm. and and Lynn, right? So this this is the this is like the the James T. Kirk sexy alien problem. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Right. So. Oh, we want to have some eroticism. We want to have some sex, but like, what we're basically going to do is put a, a a a human woman in some green makeup, and she's an alien now. But there's like Lynn is framed as being so kind of wholly other that that she's a horrifying bug monster. It's he's great. got a scary yeah. head. That's what she does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's a there's a really be- there's actually a really beautiful detail right, which is the first time the two of them have sex, uh, and it involves a very fragile, gentle touching of her insect wings, mm-hmm. and like uh, to me, I think that's a really beautiful moment because that kind of physical intimacy depends upon a lo- great deal of trust and vulnerability, no matter what yeah. kind of body might be involved, right? So mm-hmm. so even though you have this kind of like completely uh fully realized other there is there is this dialectical tension between um distance and similarity which is the core driving engine of eroticism which i think the book really nails and does it in a way that doesn't just depend upon you know the james t kirk sexy alien problem i i agree and i will add on to this never ever ever google a picture of lynn from perdido street station do not attempt to do that uh, just let your imagination fill in the gaps for you. Yeah, it's it it it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it really does like it, it feels like a very intimate scene and and the moments and, and like very erotically charged in a positive way that isn't like you know mm-hmm. you you get their relationship and like the intricacies both in a I don't know physical sense and uh, I don't know a, a, a real relationship and the issues you know of like um, what do you show who do you show like. Who, to whom is this relationship revealed or not, or is more like masked? And it sort of deals with that in a way that's like, 
you know, she's she's like a weird bug, uh, scarab person, and uh, that's cool. Oh boy, that's a that's a yeah. lot of weird stuff on Deviant Art. Ash was right. I should not have Googled that. <laughs> And and I so 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 two two things building off of both of those points like one like um so I love I love taking a look at what how people depict fantasy kind of characters when they don't have like like there isn't a Perdido Street Station movie to my knowledge and so there's no like canon depiction of what Lynn looks like right there's only written account and so I, I like looking at that and I think a lot of people sell Lynn short because they put like an ant head on like a buxom 50s pencil skirt babe and i think like that's 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 so misleading and i think it's misleading for a really important reason and that's exactly what both uh john was touching at and what frank was touching on is is this kind of like it, it doesn't matter but because like you know we're like we're talking about lynn as being a horrifying bug monster which is true but also isaac is a horrifying ape monster Yes, you know, exactly. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like he's from from Lynn's perspective, he's also got this kind of like unencounterable body, right? Like Lynn has to communicate using sign language uh, because she can't speak in the way that Isaac speaks. Uh, Lynn also struggles to read because of the way her eyes are constructed make re- makes reading incredibly challenging. Um, and likewise, Isaac can't naturally interface with like a lot of her biology. And so, like, this allows us to kind of step outside of ourselves and also step outside of our own bodies, because these things that wind up being the material changes that make their relationship work, both of them learning sign language, that's something that happens in real, our real world relationships. The same, the same with linguistic gaps, the same thing with differences in ability, right? And I, I found that to be a really, like, beautiful way to ground their relationship, because it's not grounded in, like... Isaac loves talking about how much of a perverse weirdo he is for dating for dating a bug lady, but like the thing that grounds their relationship is their willing, their both of their willingness to kind of like overcome any limitations that might be keeping them apart. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really abso- sweet. absolutely, mm-hmm. um, and it makes the ending it makes the ending just uh, absolutely brutal. heartbreakingly brutal. Yeah, I mean, if if things weren't dire enough already, given everything that happens to get there. Yes. Yeah, I, I do I do like that Lynn is also phrased as being an outsider from the rest of the um Kefri community. I I really 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 liked that that little touch cuz cuz not only does that position us as a reader much closer to Lynn cuz we're also outsiders from the space bug community, but it also adds a lot of depth, right? It it doesn't it it kind of like this supersedes the monolithic problem of creating a fantasy race. By, by automatically showing us, like, no, there's actually a lot of internal tensions, just like there would be in any kind of real-world culture or ethnicity. Yeah, and I think, like, we get that tension, like, if even just, like, the chapter ordering, where we start with, God, I forgot, I forgot his name, but <laughs> the, the Garuda at the very start, where entering the city mm-hmm. was like, what the hell is this place? And then we're immediately yep. into Isaac, as, like, who was someone who is accustomed to everything, who is familiar in this space and then we get to Lynn and then we're getting to this other familiar and unfamiliar spaces and then we're back to Isaac and, and then things continue to to change and change perspective so this I mean the book does this the entire time but like what is familiar and what is unfamiliar and how that is uh, quite uh, a pe- uh, appearance a lot of the time 
Yes, absolutely. Um, well, given that we've been talking about Lynch, should we talk a little bit about art? Yes. And then we can talk about the Weaver. Uh, yes. Uh, maybe my favorite character in the entire book. Oh, 100%. Like, there's no better Same. character. I mean, from second, the moment that they referred to, like, no, maybe we should talk to the Weaver. No, no. Last resort. It's like, I want to talk to this character immediately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, who doesn't want a, a giant cosmic spider that only occasionally exists in three dimensions um, to, to just drop in and try and make the world a more beautiful place. And hey, the Weaver has a lot of relatable hobbies. Who doesn't collect scissors and ears? <laughs> I, mean, I, for one, do. Who doesn't like aesthetics? You know, aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think the thing about the Kepid, which we're sort of drawing at, is that the... The way that biology works is that they process these fruits and berries and weird kind of color berries and produce a sort of spit art thing, which is also, which both artistic and they can create like structures and buildings out of them. A Kepri spit, it's how they refer to it, um, if I'm not mistaken. And Lynn sort of tries to break away from a particular aesthetic which she was uh, introduced to him on the, the Capri communities, and is this artist who uses her very own body and a very uh, distinct internal um, mechanics to creating art, where it's like, you know, it, you need to eat and like regurgitate this material and then mold it very quickly, like uh, some uh, very uh, quick drying plaster thing, or you add more water and, or more spit and then it becomes malleable again. So it's this very, and this is like this pearlescent opaline material. And I just like, I, I, I don't think I saw any like fan art about that. I, I did see some, some Lynn earlier, but like, I just, it's so, it's very hard for me a lot of the time, but it was so easy to visualize what Kepri spit was and looked like. It's just, mm-hmm. oh, and, and before I forget, uh, this is very quick parentheses, which, has everything to do with everything, well, nothing to do with everything. Um, New Crobazon is definitely the kind of aesthetic and definitely this book, the kind of thing that fits so much with Disco Elysium. Like, just need to say that. Mm, Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Oh, yeah, there's so much visual similarity too, yeah. But, uh, yeah, art. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I found that... <laughs> go on. Go no, on. go on. I was just going to say, Ash, you're the Retired. you're the you're the esthetician. You're the you're the art guy. So, what do you think? <laughs> so, what I really like about how China Mayville talks about Lin's art is that it's not focused on the product of that art, right? Like, like Lin is not this great outsider artist for the specific things that she's able to make. Um, she's this great outsider artist because of the kind of like work of her art, right? Like, you know, it's intimated that the final products, these kind of like statues and art pieces that she creates are, 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 are like infamous in the new Kravazan underground. Um, but like all of our focus isn't on people externally talking about how good her art is and how groundbreaking it is. It's all focused on her as an artist kind of making it. She's talking about how she's, you know, using using her like internal Kepri uh, uh, head thorax digestive system to kind of like mix these paste sticks to create the base and then add in these colors later. And like our first art scene with her is her literally shopping for supplies. And I really, really, really loved that because it one, it reminds us that art is work, 
you know, art, art is material. It's not this kind of ephemeral thing that just, just, just comes to us. It has to be like honed like a craft and a trade. But it also it also gives Lynn so much more power. Like so much of this book is about agency. Yeah. And who gets to do what, why, and when. And and by by letting us kind of just like sit with Lynn while she talks about how she's doing her art, you know, like what she thinks about it, kind of like why this job is important to her, how it relates to her broader culture and her upbringing. I, I think that's that's so much more powerful than just having like you, you know, we, we we could have had a scene where like a bunch of people gawked at her artwork and clapped and like that would have been that would have been so disempowering for her as kind of like a character. Yeah. It it, it brings that like bodily relationship to art and what that means mm-hmm. to her. Along with uh, I, Good point. I I think rather save for like the her well, her opus, the one that she spends most of the time in the novel doing, I don't think we see any of her like other proper artwork. Or at least it's if we do, it sort of fades in the background a lot more than like the actual process of her creating her art. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is in a way a kind of reflection of like some of the early twentieth century struggles around the nature of art itself, right? This is, you know, this is uh, moving away from art as the kind of romantic ideal or the or the return to a kind of classical ideal of representation or of art as kind of like the highest good and returning it and kind of like breaking open the ground of art as a challenge to engage with the world and really in Lynn's case a challenge to make the self right it, it her greatest work of art is her own history right in, in breaking out of the 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 Capri hive uh of of like leaving behind the the Capri slums with their own kind of deeply nostalgic, idealistic forms of mm-hmm. art and trying to become a kind of expressionist or even a surrealist artist. Ah, yes, yes. This is the stuff. I, I love Lynn's character so much because of all of this. It, it just adds so much more depth, it, it especially in contrast to the rest of the Kepri, who just exactly as you said, are, are completely beholden to, to also they're beholden to like a shattered past you know, forced to leave their homeland for unspecified reasons, they now congregate in the slums of this major city. And like, what what, what are they doing? Why are they, they're, they're, they're like peddling trinkets and like, like, like Lynn is, Lynn is trying to, to, to give them a new identity and to, and to like, like, like continue some kind of like broken legacy. It's so, the, the, the deep history of what Lynn is trying to do, I find it to be so absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I think she's trying to be like the most Kepri that she can. And in that particular way, like breaking away from what these perceived traditions and, you know, established communities, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it's because yeah. she thinks that aesthetically speaking, the Kepri are, are dying, right? The, yeah. You yeah. know, it's the desperate, it's desperately re- restaging these colossal failures, like it's desperately clinging on to a kind of sense of loss. You know, they arrive in Eucrobazon as dying refugees and they are still aesthetically trapped in that same space. So she, she, she leaves, she breaks one of the big taboos of society and takes a, takes a, takes a lover of a, of not, not just a different class, but a different species of being but there's there is there like what I really love about the book is that it understands the importance of uh, having a political aesthetics, or rather having a political mm-hmm. understanding of aesthetics, because yes. there's another kind of aesthetic category in this novel which is super Let's interesting. Do it. Let's do it. Which is 
the state's use of aesthetic remaking as punishment uh, with the cl- yes. the group of the remade. Uh, so the remade is uh, biothermaturgy, um, the, the biological magic in which the body of a person can be reshaped into uh, a kind of painfully ironic punishment. So, you know, uh, you're a witness who won't talk. Your face will just be replaced with a mouth and all you'll be able to do is scream. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think about the remade? It's, uh, it's the ultimate bio... Uh, no, is that the word I'm looking for? Biopolitics. It's, yeah. It's the, the control to reshape and humiliate and, you know, exert a level of control, manipulation and domination of, you know, another body to the genetic level, to the structural level. In a sense, it's like your entire life is now uh, changed because of this that you did or didn't do and for what we want you to do now when they turn them into tools or soldiers and so on. This is, this is, uh, and this is why I think the, the novel is inherently revolutionary. This is the aestheticization of politics, right? Which is Walter Benjamin pointed out is one of the markers of fascism, right? Mayor, Mayor Rudgutter and the fat son party, who run the city mm-hmm. with their militia? Yes, they're, they're fascists, they're, or at least mm-hmm. k- kind of kind of fascists. Um, so Benjamin sets up the paired opposites, right? The the um, politicization of aesthetics—that's what Lin is doing—and that is that is the inherently revolutionary, anti-fascist approach to existence. Whereas what the what a fascist po- politics does is make. Um, it aestheticizes its political power. And that's what remaking is. Yes, I love this. I love this so much, right? So um, the, the remade are, are like, the, this is one of the most interesting parts of the book for me. Um, and and like, like part of the inspiration for the remade comes from Das Kapital, right? It comes from, it comes from the, the Marx quote, an appendage of flesh on a machine of iron. Um, and like, oh my God, like the, the fact that there are like, there, there are there are people who willingly undergo the procedure to become remade, you know, for for aesthetic reasons or for personal reasons, and there are people that we've talked about who've done it, you know, as a prison a way to be punished, right? Like this kind of like biopanopticon, right? Literally installing eyes randomly into people, and then like we we also have the um the free made, right? Like uh, Jack half yes. a prayer. Um, you know, like yes, the the, le- the literal <laughs> legend of yes. Eucrobazon. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, one of my favorite characters, hands down. So Jack, Jack Half a Prayer is a remade who had a mantis arm replaced with one of his one of his regular arms rather was replaced with a mantis arm. Um, and and he he's kind of this mythical uh, uh, symbol of the remade becoming free, right? Finding their liberation, like casting down their shackles, you know. And like this is just like because like to go back to that Karl Marx quote, right? Like you know, like Marx loved talking about how the, how the human body just it just becomes mutilated and enmeshed in these horrifying machineries as an extension of capitalism as a social technology. And like this is just such a beautiful way to depict that, like beautiful in its effectiveness and simplicity. You know, like like the um the bouncers that are like like half made of steam machinery that we see like I think halfway through the book or something. Like, I love this stuff so much. 
I mean, this is why this is why Durkan describes the the remade as art gone rancid, right? Yeah. Aesthetics has its own politics, but when politics starts having a particular aesthetics, you've lost the kind of the sense of what art can be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, which I really love that description. I really love that description. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and I, lo- I love the way that Jack Halfaprayer and the Free Maid are positioned in in kind of context with this. Because, you know, like, aesthetic ground can always be contested back and forth by either side of a, of a political uh, polarity, right? You know, you have, you have anarcho-punk and you also have Nazi-punk. You have red anarchist black metal, you also have Nazi black metal. You know, like, the, the, the aesthetics are a, a, a place of conflict. And it's true for the free made as well. You know, the free made, it, it's not just solely, it's predominantly the domain of this fascist or proto-fascist military force. Uh, but but there's also as as Jack Half a Prayer and and some other uh, remade slash freemade throughout the book show us like it, there there's something liberatory there's a liberatory potential in here there, there, there's a site of rupture or a site of crisis perhaps waiting to be discovered absolutely I, I all I'm gonna say is in the sequel in the sequel the the idea of the freemade gets gets built upon and expanded and taken into some really 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 cool uh but also like profoundly moving directions okay i need to start reading the second book immediately <laughs> i think isn't the second book about a train uh that is the final book that's the final book so now i need to read the second book to get to the one that's about a train yeah that one's about a train classic leftist literature uh I mean, the second the second one is about pirates oh my <laughs> god yes so so how do I how do I know that China Mayville has left politics? That's because every other page is a character going, "Oh, we need to get on this train and go to this other neighborhood." <laughs> yes, public transport. This is very much a train book. I love it. If you're into trains, you're going to love you're going to love Pretty Street Station. Uh, yes, it's literally named after a train station. Yeah. Um Yeah. So if we um um Frank, if you uh remade, remade, do you have thoughts about the remade? I think it's it, it's just remade. such a I mean, it, it's the it's showing this extreme case of like, you know, what if the state really could change your body so much so easily? It bloody would to no end and in very, you know, twisted fantasy ways, twisted dark fantasy ways even. And it's like th- these ironic punishments. It's like, you know, who who's laughing at this? Like, what the hell's going on? Um, and, you know, at, at the same time, that uh, that backfiring. And, you know, you have, like, clandestine uh, remaking. And, you know, you have the free maid who really do escape their sort of existences. And, you know, Jack have a prayer with, like, a, a mantis arm who's quite indeed a weapon. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, it, it's both how far the state and, and, you know, the powers that be would go in order to control and change people. And change be- living beings, even, um, and yet how that's still not enough. So there, there's one, there's one remade in particular that stands out in this novel that it might be worth spending some time discussing. Motley. <laughs> I don't know why I said his name so cheery. Good old. Yeah, he's not a cheery good guy. Old mob boss. He's still I a cheery love, guy. I love, I love him. He's a horrible, horrible bastard. But I love he's, his character. He's, a, he's such a massive piece of shit. Uh, oh, he's at, he's one of those he's one of those villains that just like he just he's he he just loves being evil. It's great. Uh, he, yeah, he he loves his job. He loves being evil. He loves to be doing crime. Uh, he loves to be doing like 
drug wars. He loves to be torturing people. But he also loves to be a basically indescribable chthonic monster. Yes. He is the chthonic monster of this book. Yes, absolutely. I I think this is so important, too, because let's set aside for a second the fact that Motley is a despotic crime boss willing willing to do all kinds of evil to retain his crime power right let's let's set aside that discussion for a moment and focalize the fact that he's remade but the book heavily suggests that he's remade of his own volition or at least the point of his remaking that we've reached in the novel is something that he's chosen right like like and we get this wonderful conversation where like lynn's working on a sculpture of of motley right um and and lynn is like like looking over his body and being like in in her internal monologue is like wow this guy's really weird how am i going to sculpt this guy he's like imperceptibly strange his flesh is covered in these weird knots he's got scales with uh, scales upon horns upon scales like like limbs everywhere and then she she like gets a closer look and she sees kind of the seams in the costume and realized that she he was a remade and she asks him what were you originally you know, and then like Mr. Motley kind of loses it, and, and he's like, "That's not the point. It, it doesn't matter what I was originally. It matters what I'm becoming and what I am." And like, setting aside his villainy, <laughs> the fact that he's a bad guy—it's such a great that's a line, beautiful sentiment, it, like, it, right? It's it's incredible because it expresses the truth that that's what we all are. Yes, yes, right. Exactly. We are all this accretion of various, almost imperceptible stuff, right? And I don't mean this in like the the kind of cringe. I really love science. We're all made up of stars, kind of way, but in but but in a very physical, very material way, right? We are we are electrical impulses and scales and blood and all of these different chemical things that have like if you try and pull yourself apart to find your original core, you'll you will obliterate yourself. But if you accept constant self-becoming the process of remaking the self as 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 part of like one's identity i think that can be quite powerful yeah we are living change absolutely i think that's like the main Mm -hmm. point and like what if we made that change very visibly visible in our own bodies like that initial description i put it up very quickly uh scraps of skin and fur and feathers swung as he moved tiny limbs clutched Eyes rolled from obscure niches. Antlers and protrusions of bone jutted precariously. Feelers twitched and mouths glistened. Many colored skeins of skin collided. And so on and so on. And goes for like another five or six lines. Okay, he's literal. But if you try and take that to like, okay, what emotional being, what emotional or intellectual selves are we now? And if that isn't some creepy, weird, surreal, unimaginable... Uh, chthonic monstrosity of a thing then that has no change we we embody change in everything we do we are creatures of change and that is a massive amalgam and a very weird joint thing and like i, I think that's also a very interesting way to like okay molly he took it very seriously upon his own body but into the people that we are, even if we try and take, you know, being who we are as a unity, that's also not quite true. Um, we are ever changing and we are change. Absolutely. And we can have so much, like one of the reasons why Motley became one of my favorite characters is we can just have so much fun talking about him. 
like like how are how are the majority of remade entered into that position they're they're charged with some kind of crime and their sentence involves some some amount of remaking right motley is a crime boss it stands to reason that perhaps his early encounter with remaking was punishment by a magistrate for a crime it it, it stands to reason that he might have been forced into part of the position that he's in right now yeah right so there, there's something liberatory about him there's something that there's a kind of reclamation going on there in a sense he is one of the free made even though his position is com now complicit with the state that's making other remade right like he's a very complicated character i like it a lot yeah no absolutely like he is and, and i think that's a good point for us to try and talk a bit about the thing of like transition and how he talks about transition and like these interspaces between what is one sequence of flesh or one specific body part into another and how those boundaries are very unclear and yet for representation's sake to think of Lin making a sculpture out of him is so difficult and so unclear he's obsessed with this point of like when does one thing become another and then change into another and then change into a fourth fifth six and so on and what are those spaces in between where there are both things and none of them well this is why one of the big themes of the novel is hybridity oh, yeah. mm -hmm. right this this idea that actually there is a sort of there's something kind of dangerous and almost uh again again uh, it, it, very authoritarian in the constant seeking for a kind of perceptual purity like M motley is is a reminder that like Hybridity is the very nature of existence itself. <laughs> True. Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and... but I love, I love his his fixation of trying to have a statue made, when when ostensibly he's not going to hold this particular physical shape much longer, even if you could capture it to begin with in a way that's accurate or meaningful. Yeah, it's an exercise in failure. It's an exercise <laughs> mm -hmm. in 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 the inevitability of change in in the complete failure of like realist art oh definitely and like to think about that hybridity like some of the, a lot of the conflicts in the book and we think about the the, the garuda that should but cannot fly uh, but wants to fly again and it's like what kind of hybridity or change is necessary in order to achieve that what is possible what is impossible what would require uh <laughs> unachievable conditions but would theoretically be possible and what can be done now today with these resources it's it's about trying to i mean there's I, i'm gonna pull that the weaver line in a bit but like how, how these characters are all in these odd spaces at least our inverted commas main characters uh inhabit mm -hmm. not just non-traditional figures in their own societies but they are antithesis to themselves a lot of the time or to what they should be, uh, perceivedly should be. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great way of, of, of looking at it. And like, I'm, I'm just, I'm still not over Mr. Motley as such an interesting, awful little bad guy. Shall we, uh, shall we roll this discussion train on to a conversation on, well, maybe, maybe a certain journalist that shows up in this book series? Uh... What you mean, fantasy leader of the IWW is not one of your favorites? 
oh, this character's this character's great, and they have a zine, and this is just like, oh, this is great. <laughs> uh, I mean, isn't isn't towards an all species union against the bosses just basically an IWW slogan? Right. I love. Oh my god, I love that. I love. Oh, this book is so good. It has everything. It really does have everything. Uh, yeah, it's super important, right? There's. So we've pointed out that there are the there are potentials for uh, ethnic or racial tension, but mm-hmm. those are deliberately created by political authority. So it's incredibly important that there is a socialist call for uh, yeah cross species solidarity, particularly in the middle of a labor strike as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what 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 do we think about the about the strike? It's a great strike, and things are going well until, you know, severe military repression via air attacks. <laughs> but again, it's it's like, uh, it's such a classic example of, you know, strike-breaking tactics. You know, you focus on, you find the fracture points in your in your coalition of the working classes, and you try and separate them. And the way that it's done is, is done through... Uh, it's the Vodiane who go on strike first, uh, yep. and uh, the the Human Dockers Union has not supported their uh, their brothers in the struggle uh, because they're worried about losing wages. And it's like this is this is such this is, classic. This is such a classic problem, and it's happening in the middle of my giant fantasy novel about <laughs> terrifying slake moths. And yet it's still just as important. Uh yep, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I loved I loved Durkin uh as this kind of middle aged journalist radical. Um I think it's incredibly cool that, that they feature in this, that they're very close friends with uh Isaac as well. And yeah, who doesn't want their own zine? Come on. <laughs> yeah, let's be honest here. Uh what about you guys? Oh, they're they're great. They're, they're they're like one of the best. Genuinely, like they they, they suffer so much uh, over the course they of the really novel, do. and they holy crap! They they carry on. I think like they they do carry on the struggle everywhere in 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 their lives and in in their everyday actions, like in in their relationships, in the way they look at the world, and you know it's they're they're an awesome socialist journalist, and they're. They're, they're on. They're out there on the struggle, and they're protesting. They they understand, and they're working on on design and on the publishing and, and the investigation and how that is so important. Like I, the we're going to talk about this in a sec, but like the interconnectivity of all the stories and all that's going on in the city up towards like that, shall we say, second half of the book, and how the. Um, the strike and their work and their investigations are connected to or important to like the the administration of the city in a way but not in the way they expect and it's just yeah their work is pretty damn important and i think that's clear on like all sides not just on the strike but in their investigation of the administration possibly i didn't think about this but possibly without their work and their context, they maybe would not have been able to dig out the truth about the lake moths and so on. And this, this I think, mirrors Lynn so well, right? Because our focus on Lynn is on her work as an artist, yeah. right? The actual work that she's doing, what she thinks about her craft, 
the the trade skills that go into it, how it positions her with the kind of, I guess, quote unquote, mainstream of Capri art. And then we have the same thing here with journalism, right? Because you know, something that John and I encounter a lot in horror movies is that you, you'll like, like the end of the movie will, will be something like, oh, we have to get this secret out to the journalists and they'll tell the world. And it just kind of ends there. And the journalists just magically tell everyone and then everything is good. But in this, this is a much more devastatingly real and grounded appraisal of what's going on. You know, the the, the real threat that, that you're under doing this kind of journalism, right? Like, like the real danger that's involved with that, the, the kind of like social, the way it changes your relationship to society at large. Like, oh, it's just like, like it's it's a focalization of the work being done here rather than kind of like, lauding the aesthetic project of the activist journalist yeah you got to tell the you got to tell the story that you like that's that's the whole point you've got to be you history as a struggle is a narrative that has to be told and that's like the function of radical journalism it, it, it's very it's very grounded it's very simple in, in its com in how complex it is that like it involves uh, this secrecy this self-sacrifice and the whole, you know, sort of escape and hiding in the third part of the book, where they're, you know, literally being hunted by the authorities, and, mm -hmm. and they need to go underground again, literally, um, to survive. And you know, the I think like we mentioned this before about the question about the protagonist and, and this hero, the way that we follow a hero, and I don't think that's the case at any point of the novel, and. Unlike most fiction, and I'm and not just literary, but the the characters that we have, like this uh, this party that we have for the third uh, part of the novel or the second half, it's it, it's very believable. That's like it is this ragtag group. That's like they don't know what they're doing. They're no heroes. They're they're uh, borderline competent at what they do. Some of them, um, and and they're very intelligent. But like, are they capable of doing this? Like it's it's not like oh but they're the heroes they're going to it's like it, we don't know that anything can happen uh, because they're no heroes they're real people. I really like that way of looking at it. I really like that as looking at this book of of being absent any heroes or heroism and instead being replaced with people just trying to do their best. Yeah, you have like characters who are natural rebels, but you don't have like hero types. Yeah. I think we can say like, oh, you know, uh, Dirk and Isaac, like they're they're great, they're good people, but like they're not heroes. They're human beings. Like they're not these icons or these symbols. Like the only one in this book so that is the symbol is Jack Hafferbrer for you know being this icon, this legend. But the characters that we follow, they're like they're people with issues, with problems, with um doubts with regrets with pains and you know they're trying to get by while they're trying to do their best and trying to rebel or trying to advance in their work and they fail a lot as well and that's part of what's going on and part of their lives and that's not that's also not romantic either it's very like yeah fuck this didn't work what next well what what should we talk about next I, I, I want to talk about the Weaver. <laughs> I really want to talk about the Weaver and the idea of a purely aesthetic existence. I think that's generally... Yes! Like, Let's do it! 
like I was already loving the book, but there's a like like oh my god, this is amazing. Um, and if I didn't write this down, I'm gonna pull the quote. Uh, yeah, it's I wrote it down. So the Weaver is this gigantic, terrifying spider uh, who communicates in these I don't know prophecies, poetry. Uh, weird verses, and they have their own motivation, uh, and they're like they're individual beings, but they're also a thing. They are weavers, uh, but we have one weaver which lives in like this core underground of the city under Perdido Street Station, by the way. Um, and you know they're talking. Th this is the administration, the powers that be, talking about the weaver. Um, it was worse. More frightening by far than the ambassador. The ambassador, by the way, is the the administration's first attempt to to fight and oppose the the horrible slake moss, which we'll also talk about. I hope, um, uh, but it's the ambassador of hell. So literal deeds. Um, the hellkin were appalling and awesome, monstrous powers for which Rudgutter had the most profound respect, and yet, and yet, he understood them. They were tortured and torturing, calculating and capricious. Shrewd, comprehensible, they were political. The weaver was utterly alien. There could be no bargaining and no games. It had been tried. And, and they referred to uh, the weaver as having a pure aesthetic existence, as aesthetics as being their only goal in existence, in, in living and being in the world, or being in worlds, or being in reality and unreality. Um, that's all in favor of the web, or, or this web that is... It, 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 do they refer to it as the world web? I'm not remembering it. The world weave, The world yeah. weave, yes. It's even better. And like keeping it beautiful and keeping it functional. And we don't really understand it exactly. You know, it's it's the fabric of reality kind of thing, but not really. It's It's more than that. And we don't know more than that, and that's fine. And it is this this structure that sort of grounds reality in ways that like make no real sense but it doesn't really matter because it's this aesthetic existence it's this aesthetics it's making the web prettier and you know sometimes that means cutting off ears and worshipping scissors and collecting human ears and that's fine Everyone needs a hobby. Just the way it goes. Yeah, everyone needs a hobby. Just the way it goes. Like, come on. <laughs> I mean, uh, we're told by the administration that's like, oh, it, it took a couple of people to figure out what they're into now. At one point, they were into chess games. Now now it's scissors. Uh, but it's working now. We lost a couple of people, but now we know this works to communicate with them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is why Rudgutter can't really talk to the Weaver, because the Weaver is not interested in the politicization of aesthetics, right? Yes. It's interested... On a, it's it's purely disinterested. It's like <laughs> it's like platonic aesthetics, right? It does it mm -hmm. does not care in the same way because there's a different kind of subjectivity attached. And that's exactly why it, it it's not working with them. It's not cooperating. It's doing their own thing. It's like okay, like fine, I'll help you because that's what I was doing anyway. And then it's like oh no, they're a lot more interesting than you. See ya. And I, I really, I really like the Weaver. I really like these interdimensional spider monsters, guys, things. I, I find them to be really intriguing because, like, I, I think, like, they're so proper, properly Lovecraftian in a really refreshing way. They're like, what if you could actually talk with Cthulhu? 
you know and, and like occasionally the capricious interest of these demigods will line up with you but for how long and why you have no idea you know and like 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 we, we just really can't grasp what they're doing we just kind of have to like cross our fingers and hope we can like share goals for a long enough period of time it's just it's just ab absolutely fantastic i mean i'll read a very brief poem after the weaver has collected uh when is this oh yeah it's right when uh after uh rudgutter offers them the, the scissors lovely lovely the snip-snap of supplication, yet though they smooth edges and rough fibers, with cold noise and explosion in reverse, a funneling in a focus, I must turn, make patterns here, with amateurs unknowing artists to unpick the catastrophic tearing, there is brutish symmetry in the blue visages, that would not do it cannot be that the ripped-up web is done without patterns, and in the minds of these desperate and guilty and bereft are exquisite tapestries of desire, the dappled gang, plate yearnings for friends, feathers, signs, justice, gold. So that's a... It's uh, it's uh, yeah. Th there you go. C makes complete sense. Nice. Makes complete sense. Uh, yeah. I I love, I love how the slake moths are like the only thing that the slake moths are like afraid of or don't want to fuck with at all are the weavers, and it, it, it's it's t totally rests upon like everything that the slake moths consume ha have discrete units of memory. Right, like like memory that needs to be categorized and compartmentalized and understood and assigned labels and indexed. And the, and the weaver just has this like unrelenting stream of consciousness that that just can't be correlated or contained. It's 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 such a fascinating juxtaposition of our desire to. Well, you know, what, what does it mean that we have no matter where you align on any kind of political uh like axis or political chart you know we we have a desire to impose very strict and very rigid categories on the world even when those categories ostensibly are designed to betray any kind of taxonomy they're still nevertheless beholden to really rigid structures and then you get the weaver and it's just like this pure, it, the pure fluid existence. It, it's it, it is that act of transformation, unbound from everything else. Yeah, it's not that it doesn't have subjectivity. In a way, it has too much subjectivity for the slake moths to cope with. Mm -hmm. Right. It's an Absolutely. it is a it is an ontological excess. It's a metaphysical excess because it exists multidimensionally. <laughs> exactly. It's it's this engaging and understanding of reality that is like. I mean, we, we talked about flow of consciousness and, and that as, as a thing and a thing in writing. And it's like this, it's this entire existence. And it's not, it's not that it's uncategorized, that it's chaotic. No, it's, it's perfect in the way that it works for the weaver. Like it's all connected. It's all clear. It's all clear cut. It's all understandable for them. And okay, it makes no sense to us a lot of the time, or it does, but it's, it's their entire existence. It's all that. That's their communication. There's their acting. Like that is the order that they work. And in that sense, it's entirely clear and obvious and impossible to understand. And in a sense, immune to the slake moths. Well, should we talk about them? I think it's finally time. Let's do it. Enter, enter the moth zone. So here's my first point. Mm-hmm. The, they're not evil. No. Oh no. Not definitely at all. not. Like there's, they just they just are. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, second thing is that they are so effective, they are self-destructive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, they're so good at being predators that they will eventually run out of food. Um, and as such, are a good metaphor for capitalism's own instability. <laughs> True. Yeah. Right, because that, that's the contradiction. That's the capitalist contradiction, right? Capitalists uh, will kind of take in so much and will consume so much and it, you know, literally shits out dreams. But, like, eventually you run out <laughs> of resources. You run up against the limits of the natural world itself. Precisely. Yeah. I, I, I love this, right? And, and like, it, it's just constantly, you know, like, capitalism is always looking for a new, a new frontier to mine. Right, there's a new thing that gets colonized and strip mined and gutted and cannibalized, and and the but the one thing the one thing that this kind of perfect embodiment of capitalist predation can't touch, is 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 like the pure living rupture that is the weaver, like like not not to drag <laughs> us back into weaver chat, but it's it's so compelling that like this alien mode of being that hinges on kind of these new horizons of reality is the one thing that's immune to kind of the ravages of capitalism. It's something that's already living beyond it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's psychic vampires, right? That's what, that's, that's what they are. They are psychic vampires. Um, And, and, you know, the vampire has always had an element of metaphor about capitalist accumulation in it, but it's like, it's makes it so visceral but visceral in a way that visceral in a way that kind of shows how capitalism doesn't just take the body it takes the mind it takes it doesn't just take uh, kind of flesh it takes consciousness like capitalism doesn't just kind of uh, liquefy the body into that kind of gelatinous galerte but like the consciousness goes with it yeah mhm it just leaves you as an empty right. husk that is incapable of anything else like it's just there's nothing else and there is no way back there's nothing to return like it's it's literally been consumed been processed and digested by the slake moss or capital if we want to put it in that way it's become something else and this is this is such a fantastic balance with the remade too because the, the the slake maws are doing this to our psyche and our minds, but the magistrates and the city government are doing this to the body itself. You know, not, not to not to mire us in like any kind of mind body dualism uh, jesting, but like the, the the that kind of balance is really intriguing, right? Because the slake maws will, will will strip mine what's left of your memories and your hopes and your dreams and your thoughts, and then your your punishment from the magistrate will be to be made into some kind of half machine monster. And it's it's such a wonderful balance because the thing that brings the slake moths into town in the first place is the corrupt government working with the crime boss yep. to make some money off a new highly exactly. addictive. Yeah, technology. it's it's the pedido. It's the a new uh, chromosome militia doing like MK Ultra experiments. Oh yeah, <laughs> so they can so they can like introduce drugs to to the working classes. <laughs> It's the uh, Perdido Contra affair, I believe, is what it was called in the book. But I'm and it's interesting, like the limits of what, in a sense, capital and the slake moths cannot uh, process, cannot perceive, or cannot interact with, 
which are both the weaver as this pure aesthetics, this pure mm-hmm. irrationality in a sense. And, well, that, that, that's my segue, the Construct Council. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes here we go. Steampunk here we go. cybernetics, let's go. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Favorite character unlocked. Let's talk about the robot compute, therefore I am. Yeah, I mean, th- this little little lump of machine. This is this is like I say, this is steampunk cybernetic networking, right? It's it's about uh, distributed consciousness that can't be attacked because it isn't located in as a discrete subject. The consciousness is everywhere, um, mm-hmm. and it, it's like it's so notable that like the resources of the city are turned against the threat to the city itself, right? There is a revolutionary potential in the garbage produced by capitalism. Right? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Right? And, and like like so so the um the construct council, right, as as we've hinted at, is made of these little these little steampunk robot guys, and you put little punch cards into them and they can do basic tasks, right? They can do computing, they could they could do menial labor. Um, but then through errors in programming, some of them become self aware and they bind together in this this console. Um, and I think this is so fantastic, right? Because essentially we have the, the, the kind of capitalist structure of the society of New Kravazan creating for itself a new servant caste in these constructs, right? Like like a new a new group of beings that exist only to serve their masters. And in, and in these like like most most oppressed, most crushed under heel, not even seen as being alive. Um, or worthy of any consideration that they're they wake up to becoming a point of rupture in the fabric of this oppression and like just exactly what you said like this is literally the garbage showing up on your door to revolt and this is like oh my god when once when they showed up in the book i was just like this is phenomenal i love them so much i hope nothing bad ever happens to them (laughs) whoops Yeah, so 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 compelling, so interesting, and like it forces us to like question our own relationships to the technology we use, right? But because like like you know this is a little metaphoric, sure, but like where, where does our technology come from? You, you, you know, like 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 we don't see our technology as having any connection to life whatsoever, but it's it's a literal child slave labor mining the little metal bits we need for our computers and our lithium batteries and and the Teslas of the world and all of that stuff. You know, like like that same kind of crisis, right? Like exists embodied within what we see as inanimate. Yes, <laughs> just yes. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> it's so interesting. Like one of, and, and like this is is like a sci-fi concept, really. Like this idea of like a, you know a robotic hive mind kind of thing, but that it's not quite that. It's something more because effectively, like the construct council is a being but it connects these other beings with these other constructs to themselves but then when they're going their own experiences they are separate again and then they became become one once again when they connect and then they separate so it's it's these various different existences and connections to join and separate and yet it's yeah it's like i say it's it's literally like socialist cybernetics yes yeah definitely but, but between between the construct council and the the garuda there are so many visions of what does it mean to be in community and to be comrades with others yes 
um and and in our little like our our you know like no pun intended our motley crew right our, our little gang of of misfits and miscreants that that bind together to fight the slake moths yeah oh this book is so good mm. <laughs> thinking about the stuff that we've talked about and the stuff and we, we've been for a little while but i i if you're fine i want to go for a little bit more just to talk about like some of the most well shall we say like uh the two t- things that I, one I think we absolutely need to talk about, and John phrased it the best way possible, even before we chatted today, um, which is crisis energy, and the other one is like the Garuda, yeah. and you know the Garuda we interact with, and the idea of choice theft, and you know the nomadic anarchist, anarchistic birdman. So I think that's that's where our endpoint. But I want to go for crisis energy before because I, um, I mean, do you want to tell them how do you phrase it, John? <laughs> Uh, yeah, crisis energy is dialectical materialism. Uh, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> the, the the idea that like that metaphysically, that on the level of existence, things have potential within them to turn into something else um, is like from Engels' dialectics of nature. I love it. I love it. We're done. That's Perfect. good. That's great. Oh yeah. Oh what? Like there's the great moment where he draws out a diagram and he's like, oh, I love. Oh, oh my god, I love this. What is this mysterious field? What is this mysterious <laughs> area of knowledge that you can unite the like the material and the social world? And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what it could be. <laughs> I that so that 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 moment comes out of my favorite chapter in the book. That's chapter fourteen. Which, which is an unbroken rant from Isaac about crisis energy. And it's this, it's this flow of consciousness ramble about it. And it's, oh my God, it was, I had the, it was the most excited I got reading the whole book. It was so good. Mm, I love it. <laughs> it winds up becoming a really useful theory, kind of like a piece of theory fiction too, right? We've identified this thing called crisis energy. Okay, how, how do we use that exactly? What can we use that for? What is it capable of? And it turns out it's capable of fundamentally transforming everything we know. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah w- what can di- what can dialectical materialism do? It can literally remake the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it can give us like free energy, perpetual motion machines. Like it's one of the side plots, kinda. But it's like whenever there's this whiff of crisis energy as a thing, like it worries like the, uh, the administration and Rudgutter. Almost even more than the slake moths, which are literally killing mm-hmm. most of the population and terrifying the entire city. It's like no, this crisis energy stuff. This is even more serious, um, and it draws the attention of the construct council as well. So it's like this has the potential to change everything. Yeah, I mean, like the reason why is because crisis energy is about revolutionary potential. Yes. Right, what can you do with it? You could do anything with it, right? The world could be wholly different. And so immediately the political question is like, well, who gets to decide? Uh, and should it be ordinary mm-hmm. or should it be ordinary people? Should people have that kind of and it's like crisis energy is it's about the systematization of a certain kind of metaphysics, a certain kind of like uh, understanding of the universe itself. Um, but that necessarily has to lead you on to political questions, right? Which is why when Isaac creates the crisis engine that is supposed to let uh, Yagharak fly again, he decides he mm-hmm. decides in the end not to go through with it. He decides in the end not to help him. And he does that for political reasons. Yes. Yes. 
Unfortunately, he does not deliver the Crisis Engine to the Construct Council, where it should have been in the first place. So I'll just point that out. Grown him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't distrust the the Construct Council. I really don't. I was like, I, I, I implicitly trust them in everything. They will certainly do nothing bad if we give them unlimited power. I, I just want to make a brief tie-in with you know the stuff that I'm doing um, and doing my masters on, um, but like mm-hmm. this, yeah, this definitely. thing about like Crisis Energy and this potential for for this understanding and this being dialectical materialism as a potential for emancipation is really familiar uh with it's like a, a parallel or an adjacent point to to what shevek doesn't dispossess with the general temporal theory which is this yeah. bringing together of past and present and future and understandings of yeah. time in a way that is both you know cyclical memory centered seasonal focused into the linear engagement of time. And that is history. Um, Shevek rediscovers histories, part of my thesis, um, as like, you know, things change. Things have changed. Things will continue to change. And to believe that like, oh, this is not possible anymore. Or this isn't going to happen. No, that's, that is never the case. We are children of time. It's... History is already happening and has already happened and will always happen. So it is all up for grabs. It is all up to be changed if we are willing to understand it and engage it like that. And so is crisis energy. If we are willing to undertake dialectical materialism as this engaging with the world, we can indeed find liberatory potential. We can find liberation there in confronting the world as it is now. And I had also hadn't thought about this before, but uh, th- this is why podcasting is so amazing. Like you come up and bring these things together in a really <laughs> interesting and beautiful way. Oh, that was fantastic. I loved <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that was beautiful. That was beautifully put. Thank Absolutely. You. Should, should we wrap things up by, by, by talking about the Garuda yes, and Yagarak? I think we should. Because it does, it is, it is the framing device. This, this isn't. Uh, weirdly, this is kind of an epistolary novel. Uh, yeah, in a way, we do have. We we have uh, the story is punctuated punctuated by uh, Yagarak, a wingless Garuda, uh, writing writing. I guess his journal or his diary, and it is it is what we end on. It is the last thing that we hear, which I find that to just be fascinating. I mean, uh, it is. It's the frame. It's the. It's you know we have our outsider at the beginning of the novel, and we end with the outsider who is now an insider. Mm-hmm. He's he will he will always he's kind of trapped, you know he's he's this is where he has to find a sense of belonging, and we we should talk about how he got there too. <laughs> yes, the thing the thing that we find out after. After all of the the intense the intensity of of demons from hell and the slake moths and and interdimensional spiders, the the the, the kind of final horror of the novel. Um, so yeah, uh, Yag is a is a Garuda who is a uh, they are a race of uh, I suppose you would call them uh, birdmen who live in the Simak Desert, mm-hmm. uh, but live a kind of extremely I suppose libertarian existence. Yeah. Um, their their legal system is based upon the respect for others' choices. Um, Yag turns up in New Crobazon without their wings. The wings have been torn off, and they want to be able to fly again. 
they were torn off because they were guilty of choice theft. Oh, yeah, what do you what do you both think about this? I do just want to flag up really quickly that if if we have any American listeners and to our American listeners in the audience, uh, that's libertarian in the old European sense and not libertarian in the American. <laughs> sense. Yes, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> um, gotta gotta clarify that one before we have horrible misconceptions about the uh, the Garuda and their ways. Yeah, I. I think like we, you know, we, we, we have Yagarek at the very start and we, we follow him as, you know, this, this framing device, this character that motivates most of the plot. And, you know, we, we accept his reasons. It's like, okay, he's been a victim of this crime, uh, this punishment for this crime, which we don't know. And we don't know for nearly the entirety of the novel. And at the end, we do find out. And it's still so strange because... At the end of the day, it's not what we call it our crime. It, it, there's this conversation between another Garuda that shows up and Isaac. And it, mm -hmm. they say it's like, no, and I'm not saying what it is because I'm for suspense still. <laughs> but it's like, it's not what you, it's <laughs> not that. Th that's something else. This is choice theft. And what is choice theft? But it's it's effectively robbing someone else's choices someone else's freedom to choose this positive freedom not this not the i differentiated negative freedom as like freedom from and positive freedom as choice freedom to and choice theft it eliminates the freedom to in one way or another so uh how do they frame it that you know to steal someone's food is to remove their to steal their choice to eat it um and there are very, a few degrees of choice theft. And Yagarek is of, I don't remember the exact designation, but a specific type of choice theft, which is to remove someone else's choice. And effectively, it, it, while there is their crime and whatever, what is forced and questioned upon Isaac is just like, okay, he's your friend, but will you oppose the judgment that we, as their society... Is the society which, you know, he was a part of, the society which he lived, will you oppose us as well? Because, will you deny our judgment, the judgment that we gave to him? Will you stand against us too? And Isaac is conflicted because while the crime for him is terrible, even if he doesn't understand it wholly, effectively, like, he does not want to necessarily oppose these barbers. Like, do I really understand or engage with their judgments or not? It's like, but am I also in a position to deny their judgment, to deny their entire society while I work on this friend of mine? And that's why Isaac, in a sense, like refuses to help. It's like, I, I will not help you. I will not stand in your way. I won't deny you, but I will, I'll leave. I won't give you this. I will not oppose their judgment because it's their judgment and i am not in a position to do so that's like it's a shitty choice to make but he i, I don't know I, I i think he makes the best possible choice but it's still it's bittersweet no matter which way you look at it and when you look at the crime it's like yeah it's it's rough yeah i i think this is uh oh did i interrupt somebody sorry no no go on no 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 go on Okay. No, so, sorry that Slake Moth finally finally broke into my apartment is now probing oh my mind. 
uh, but but much like a cosmic spider, there's there's nothing up there but noise. So it just distracted me for a second. Oh, not surprised. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's yeah just everyone, everyone no knows. Everyone knows. Uh, podcasters are immune to the slake moths. <laughs> Honestly, <True>. yes. <laughs> they get one one taste of the podcaster's mind, and all of a sudden they're just like turning to stone. <laughs> um. But but so so what ends, up, what ends up happening is we find out that Yag is a rapist, right? And, and he he raped a, another Garuda named Kar Uchai. Um, I might be saying that wrong. Uh, but what I find to be really, really interesting about this, right, is that um, Isaac is trying to internalize this with the laws of New, New Kravizan, which are the laws of humanity. Or not humanity, but like our laws, right? He, he's trying to look at it in, in human terms. And, and we get this kind of like... Uh, uh, Kar Uchai keeps telling him, "You can't translate this. Do not translate it. Don't don't try to translate this into the laws of Nukravazan." And and Kar Uchai, she says, "I was not violated or ravaged. I am not abused or defiled, or ravished or spoiled. You would call his actions rape, but I do not. That tells me nothing. He stole my choice, and that is why he was judged." And I I find that to be an incredibly powerful way to approach the end of this book, uh, because after all after all of this conflict with with the literal demons of hell, cosmic beings, uh, monstrous interdimensional moths stealing people's memories, the the corrupt proto fascist government of the city and its and its kind of like uh, unofficially deputized gangs, like for the final thing to hinge on like kar uchai a garuda woman like getting getting to dictate how how this kind of crime committed against her um is is remembered and understood by people around her and how her community levied a kind of punishment against one of their own and whether or not that should be respected outside of the bounds of that community like it ends on such a complicated note you know, like like this is this this is not a clean little bow on the end of this book. It is like it is a ticking <laughs> time bomb on page nine hundred. It's so good, John. I mean, what else can I say? <laughs> what else can I, I can I can I add to that? Um, how how do you make choices? How do you make choices? And a lot of the time, mm-hmm. we make the novel kind of implicitly critiques us for making choices that abstract the other people that we are inevitably bound up with. Right, you can do this in a legal sense, right? You steal somebody's clothes, clothes. you steal somebody's food. You've treated them as an abstract idea, not a person who actually needs the food as well, right? So uh, choice theft is a really interesting kind of ethics because it depends upon this really strong idea of personal autonomy, but a personal autonomy that only makes sense in relationship. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I, I I love Isaac processing this too because when he when he's first approached by Kar Uchai, he he he's like, oh how did I mean like he's internally trying to think of how that would happen. He's like, oh did 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 Yag trick her? Did Yag use violence? You know he he's using like very crass human legalistic terms. But then by the end of the conversation, he he finally gets the whole point of choice theft. You know, like, like he, he's like, oh, like, like he realizes that it's not just the crime in the moment, but it's the cascading series of choices that continue on for indefinitely after that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 the shutting off of a branching of reality. 
you know, it's, it's this limiting of, of personal freedom that's been violated. It's this kind of like transhistoric temporal crime. Precisely, yeah. And that's how the Garuda see these events. And that's, it's, it's, oh, it's just such a good place to end this book. China Mavel's so good. And what it does is it forces Yag to live with the choice that was made. Yeah. Right? Because getting, yes. getting to fly again, because that's what he wants. He wants to be able to fly again. Getting to, Getting to fly again is a way of not having to live with the choice that was made about him. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which shows, well, he hasn't really learned anything. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's essential. It's essential that the novel end the way it does. And I actually think the ending is entirely correct. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. Because what happens is that Yag says he's become something else now. He He's never going to get to go back. He's never going to be back up in the clouds, right? He's never going to get to fly again, so he has to become something else. He has to live with the consequences of his actions, the choices that he made and yes, what they precisely. lead to. Yes, ab- absolutely. Abs- this, this whole book is, is about the kind of like cascading limitations of our own choices and how those necessarily interact with and involve the rest of the people around us, right? Like a, a lot of this rests on Isaac. You know, if if he didn't, I don't know why I'm pronouncing his name so strangely. By the way, I think it's because it's a fantasy novel, and now I've just kind of like been been indoctrinated into weird name pronunciations. <laughs> but like, um, like you, you know, at the beginning, like Isaac agrees to work for Yag to help give him new wings, because because Yag has a giant sack of literally a giant sack of gold. <laughs> True. And he's like, here, I'll pay you this giant sack of gold. And Isaac, there's this whole like, I think it's like three paragraphs. We're like, we're like, Isaac is like, oh, I could have asked for a lot more. And if he's given me this up front, he's probably got a ton more money on top of this. Isaac doesn't even consider to ask why the wings are gone or really pry into that or kind of consider the ethics of what he's doing at all. He's just happy to get paid and I do mean, it. I mean, when he asks Yag what that means and Yag is deliberately mm-hmm. vague, he deliberately does not yes, say what he yes. did. He's like, he stays into mm-hmm. like the specific Garuda concepts and refuses to go deeper into it because in some way he's aware that, you know, his choice uh, was bad, was pretty damn awful. Yeah, maybe Isaac would have refused. Oh, definitely. And then the Slake Maws wouldn't have killed the town, <laughs> you know? Like, and so we see how, how capitalism shapes choice, right? Like, like Isaac, Isaac didn't, he's not greedy, you know, he's not covetous of that money and made that decision from a from a place of moral corruption. He's poor. Yeah. He, he's like working on the edge of, of society, doing a lot of crime. You know, he needed that giant sack of gold, right? Like he, he wasn't in a position to question. Yeah, this is exactly the point that so, so many people bring up and they go, oh, if you're interested in freedom, you should be a capitalist. And it's like, no, <laughs> I'm interested in freedom. I'm interested in freedom because that's why I'm anti-capitalist. That's why I'm interested in revolutionary politics because it's only in uh, if you if you want genuine freedom to make choices about your life, you should not be a capitalist because capitalism is about the removal of choice and the removal of your human autonomy and exchanging it for the random fluctuations of the market. Right? You don't have autonomy. You don't have genuine human freedom in capitalism, but you have a kind of pale feeble shadow imitation of that 
I mean, this is this is why it's it's you know this, we talk about the kind of meme of like there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. It's because it's because there is no freedom mm-hmm. not to be in this network of uh, hyper con- cons- consumption. Yeah. yeah, totally right. Totally right. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. What what a book, eh? <laughs> where we don't where we start right? off so good. uncomfortable, uncertain, and then we end in a somewhat even more painful and difficult position although we've <laughs> yes. learned a lot we've been through a lot we've survived an absolute catastrophe and killed these weird slight moth creatures which are psychic vampires but it doesn't solve anything if anything what would solve something it's still out there to be understood engaged with and done yeah, the process of revolution continues. The process of revolution always continues. Exactly. And and that continues aesthetically and stylistically in the next two books. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> Me either. I... Yeah, what a book. What a book. <laughs> and I mean, like, we've... I, I am genuinely surprised at how much we've covered in so little time. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of we 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 had we had a, a good a good pace for the for this one. It's yeah, no uh, th- thank you both. Thank you both for for everything. Oh, thank you for having of us course. on. Like how could I not? <laughs> as as always, it is a pleasure to get to team up with the left page. Thank you so much for I mean, yeah. you're always a delight to chat. Yes, thank you. You're both amazing. I mean, come on. Oh, you're amazing too. So, uh, as we wrap up, where can people find you, support you, read your stuff, give you money, that kind of thing? <laughs> uh, if you would like to purchase some of our highly hallucinogenic podcasts, uh, you can do that through <laughs> patreon.com slash horrorvanguard for just uh, the price of a cup of dream shit tea a month. Um, and we will we will haunt your dreams and waking nightmares uh, with some good leftist analysis of horror films and radical theory. Uh, w- w- what else, Ash? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Darrowvania. You can find John at the Lit Crit Guy. Horror Vanguard is at Horror Vanguard everywhere. Good podcasts are sold. And and yeah, I don't know. It's just always always great to to do an episode with with you, Frank, and do an episode with the left it's, page. It's, it's always just a great. joy to have you both on. And it's like we go in such amazing ways that I really didn't expect. And it's like it's the best. It's generally the best. Uh, and yeah, from from my end, you can find us uh, find me on Twitter at Frank Gothic or at uh, Left Page Pod. And if you're interested, you can find us on Patreon at patreoncom forward page where there's left page writing bonus content and there's our new bonus spin-off show uh, which you can access early for patrons which is here be media where we talk about video games and other stuff our first episode was on Ooh. Hades the wonderful super giant game and nice. the, yeah. the next one and the following one were on Knights of Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2 one should be out by this episode to Hopefully recorded by the time this goes out, but probably not released yet. But uh, they're great. You, 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 you have good things coming. I promise you. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> just thank you, John Ash. You're you're the best friends and co-ghosts one could have on their pod. 
And Aww. yeah, thank you for being here. Thanks everyone for listening and sticking around. Another incredible, unforgettable Halloween episode with the Horror of Anger. Stay spooky, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>